<laughs> I said happy Tuesday and noted that it was almost Wednesday. We were halfway there. Uh, see, we, we don't we never do that because that's that's like calendar math. Okay, so we, I was spiking the football a little too early. Is that what you were doing? Yeah, there you go. So how are you? you doing all right? Doing well. You, um, you were not here last week. You had vacation. I don't need to know where you went, but did you have a good time? I did. I'm a little more sunburnt than when I left. Oh, shut up. And, uh, Washington, D.C. is still uh, gloomy, uh, but uh, but exciting. So when you landed back in D.C., did you weep? Did you cry? Did Were you saddened that you had to be back in the swamp? Or, or do you just accept it as the uh, the horrible place where God has placed you? <laughs> um, we uh, we all have our, our, our burden to uh, to carry, <laughs> but uh, mine is especially light. Um, I think what uh, was interesting is you take a, um, a, a step back and you leave for a week, and then you come back to an entirely different news cycle. Yeah, uh, everything has changed. Uh, most notably, the president um, through some. Uh, Cloak and Dagger work secretly showed up in Ukraine to uh, celebrate the West's support of that country. And uh, elsewhere, Congress is empty. Members of the House and Senate are out on recess. And we're all sort of waiting for what's going to come next with uh, 2024 and that presidential election that I feel like you and I have been talking about for for years forever now. yeah it's been forever so um do you feel, let me ask you this this is off the cuff here but but when you left to go on vacation we were knee deep in balloons and shooting them down or not shooting them down um <laughs> and 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 then we were going through the train and the derailment and he didn't go to see it should he have gone now like you say cloak and dagger very very james bondish uh, very much what uh, George W. did while we were there um, uh, on the ground in Iraq and just did this ta-da where they just show up, which is, you know, people say, oh, well, that's no big deal. It's harder than you think to mm. do that. You know, uh, that plane that they ride in is somewhat recognizable. <laughs> and there's an added level of complexity here from what has been reported thus far uh, we know that President Biden didn't fly on Air Force One with the uh, blue eggshell paint that we all right. recognize. Instead, he was on a smaller plane, but complicating things. And I think your comparison to the trips of George W. Bush to Iraq and Afghanistan is really helpful here. Complicating things for Biden was the fact that the United States doesn't have troops on the ground. Right in Ukraine, or at least in any meaningful uh, security posture. Yeah, you don't have an extra 2,000 guys that you could call to the airport, you know, to to surround the plane and make sure he gets where he's going. They're not there. Absolutely. But the symbolism is significant because we're on the eve of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and make no doubt about it, you have members of Congress who have slipped on numerous occasions and said, we are at war. Um, certainly, there's been no declaration of war uh, from this administration, but it is absolutely um, a proxy war. The reason why the Ukrainians have been able to slow the Russian advance thus far is because of the weapons and uh, economic support that the United States has provided. And the reason why the Russian war machine has slowed, as well as their economy, is because of the sanctions and import and export um, controls that the United States has placed on that economy. Yeah. So we don't have boots on the ground, but when the president was there in the flesh, 
uh, it was clear that he was, um, you know, this was more than just reviewing the Ukrainian effort. This was a, a joint U.S. and Ukrainian effort. Yeah. Um, d- did this stir, first of all, I'm sure it stirred some shock in D.C. that he was there. I remember, I remember when Bush, over Thanksgiving, went to Iraq, and everybody around D.C. was like, wait, he's where? You know, they, they had no idea. They thought he was still in Waco, Texas, having dinner with Herbert Walker and Barbara and his wife, Laura. In fact, none of them knew where he was. They thought he had slipped out, like, to go into Waco to go, uh, to go get some extra baked beans or something. And the next thing they know, they heard that he was in D.C. changing planes. So, you know, you, you, there are certain ways you've got to do this. What's, what's the response— not of the people on the street, but of the people in the press corps and others. Is this a surprise to them? Do they think it's cloak and dagger? Do they think it's just cloak to make people forget what it is that's been going on? Because this will take the wind out of every other story for a while. What's the take? The take is that the Biden administration needed a PR win, and they took one. I think that a lot of people who don't get paid for their opinions saw this as a opportunity for the administration to uh, spike the football, so to speak, and really point out that Ukraine was expected to crumple. They didn't because of support from the United States. Yeah. Uh, with Biden's trip, uh, the logistics, it's interesting, um, They, uh, the president and the first lady, they had dinner at a local restaurant here in town. It was expected that he was going to go to Poland. Usually there's a pretty big press corps that travels with the president. This time, though, uh, only two reporters uh, were able to be part of that pool uh, directly within his vicinity rather than the usual. Wasn't that a bit of a tip? That was a bit of a tip. Um, And I think that while this is high drama, the president was going to a country that has been ravaged by war, Um, I spoke with a number of other members of Congress who have also made that trip. Uh, Senator Angus King recently told me about his sit-down with Zelensky. And uh, Zelensky obviously was was here in the United States. He had an audience with Biden uh, in the Oval Office uh, last December. It seems that the president wanted to uh, return the favor. So what is the takeaway of all of this, right? More than just travel schedules and photo ops, what is the takeaway? The takeaway here is that Biden said that the United States support of Ukraine is unwavering, and he's also going to show up. Uh, We don't have our resources deployed, but we are getting to a point here where the United States is making clear to Russia that we are not going to cut and run uh, despite the significant financial costs, some of the significant economic costs as well when it comes to uh, energy and Russia and Putin, they have shown no interest in backing down either. This is increasing brinksmanship um, when it comes to the biggest land war in Europe since the Second World War. Yeah, no, you're exactly correct. Also, the timing of it uh, in that, this is my opinion now, where the um, where the State of the Union, I thought, felt a little flat and it didn't really promise a whole lot that wasn't already out there. And I think a lot of the people are like, hum, ha, oh, yeah. And, and this takes all of that off the table. You can't deny the president was on a risky trip, uh, that he was, you know, I mean, he, if you think about it, Philip, it could have gone horribly wrong. If mm-hmm. the wrong person would have seen that he was there, it could have gone amazingly wrong. Thank goodness it didn't. 
Um, but at the same time, uh, while he's there uh, traveling on whatever he's traveling on, whatever it is, it's officially Air Force One at the time. Um, but he's only got you know two uh, uh, pool reporters with him, so it's not a huge uh, entourage that's there. Um, but he he sits there and basically says, "We are with you in the long haul. We're we're with you to the end of this thing." Was this a shot to Putin? And hearing that China was maybe being uh, entreated to back up uh, 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 Moscow, and that Beijing was going to be asked to supply you know a few tanks and planes and a few billion dollars and all that, Russia is not flush with cash right now. Mm-hmm. You know they've and they've not won this war as they said they would. This thing was supposed to be done eight months ago. So th- this is now. I mean, it's tough on. It's tough on Ukraine, but it's also siphoning away uh, all of Russia. In fact, let me go one step further. Philip, this is a horrible interview for you, and I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I think if, if President Xi is in treating any kind of conversation with Putin, I think the whole reason is I think that, that Xi will make sure that Russia is a little more precarious than they are now. Let them go a month or two deeper where everything is really teetering on the brink. And then he comes in, but he comes in with handcuffs and says, okay, I'm going to do it, but here's what's going to happen. And for all practical purposes, China, from that point forward, might end up directing Russia's policies. I don't think that you can discount the closeness between Beijing and Moscow, because remember, Putin travels to the Beijing Olympics and has an extended sit down with Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, during those winter games, holding off until the next year for the invasion of Ukraine. Their closest uh, ally thus far has been China. Yeah. And remember, these are two powers that historically didn't get along. Uh, we saw the Nixon administration try to take advantage of that during the 1970s by you know, opening up trade relations uh, with China. And the administration throughout all of this, if you go back to March and April of, of 2022, uh, they were repeatedly saying to Russia, um, you know, if you continue to escalate this, look at all of these other world powers in the West um, and across the globe that are imposing sanctions on you. You will become increasingly beholden to China the longer you prosecute this war. While that sounds like a warning, and certainly uh, Moscow would like to be the one calling the shots, not Beijing, the flip side of that is. In, in Russia and China, you have two geopolitical foes who do not like the United States. And one of the concerns thus far has been that as the United States um, rallies to Ukraine, they're sort of dragging those two powers closer together. Yeah, enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the play out of that in, in spades, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's the closest thing. Um, Xi has nothing to gain by helping Russia just on the surface. Russia has everything to gain. So you've got to know Xi is not an idiot. You know, he could just as easily just stay out of it. Uh, But I think Xi is really trying to play his cards here, and he's trying to figure out how is it that I can help defeat the United States in Ukraine and philosophically defeat Russia so they become so dependent on us that they have to stay with us. 
one of the big unanswered questions thus far has been how does this thing end? How does the United States um, win a victory that the Ukrainians are going to be satisfied with and that the Russians are not going to upend later on? We've heard really startling, disturbing talk coming out of Moscow about the possibility of the use of nuclear arms. Uh, This is not um, something to be taken lightly. But the question is, what is the administration's definition of victory? When are they going to say, all right, this is done? Is it when the Ukrainians win back territory that was lost under the Obama administration when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014? Is it if they sue for peace? I've asked the administration that question um, numerous times, and they haven't given uh, a straightforward answer now well they're probably going to circle back with you on that (laughs) yeah now they'll say uh you know nothing about ukraine without ukraine and that's a nice slogan but they haven't said look this is what we would be satisfied with the reason why that question matters is because while all of this is really complicated and complex there is a simple question of how many resources can we send to ukraine in terms of dollars and bullets at a moment when we know that in this decade, um, President Xi Jinping has said that China hopes to uh, reunite Taiwan with the mainland. From the the sense that I get when you talk to numerous national security experts, and I think that even if you ask the, the man on the street, they would say that China is an exponentially greater threat to U.S. interest. Yep than Russia is. Yep. So you've got to answer that question. What is the off-ramp in Ukraine? Because there is a larger conflict, one that could potentially change the lives of future generations to come uh, with a simmering uh, conflict with China. Well, and you know, and when you're dealing with China, when we have zero places here making computer chips, for example, and it all comes from China, it's pretty hard to just disregard that out of hand and not pay attention to what they're doing or what they want. You kind of have to kowtow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke with Representative Mike Gallagher. He's going to head this new House Select Committee on China. And he made a point, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great academic point, but it's a difficult one to swallow when you face the real-world implications. When the United States faced down the Soviet Union, our economies were not intertwined. In this current conflict with China, they absolutely are. And I remember uh, late last year um, when I interviewed former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo right. um, about China, and he was really straightforward in that he said um, he abrogated his Tea Party credentials when he advocated for the CHIPS Act, which was the Biden administration's push to build more of those semiconductors here in the United States. And I think that what we're seeing in this moment is while there's disagreement over Ukraine, both Republicans and Democrats are increasingly um, alerted to the threat that's coming out of Beijing. There's no more happy talk about if we just trade with them, eventually the Chinese yep. will become our friends. Yep. No, no, no. They've made clear that they want to supplant the United States. Yeah, the glitter's off the rose there. Um, real quick question for you, Philip. I need to get out of here. But a real quick question, a one-word answer. Um, China. Does China does China want to overta- overtake the United States? Yes or no? Oh yeah. Okay. That as much. And do we realize that's what they want to do? I think that after the Trump administration, 
it was impossible for Biden to go back to the pre-Trump uh, consensus, which was we just need to work on liberalizing China. They're much more alert and yep. prepared. Yep. Um, but, you know, we'll see if that's just happy talk or if people are able to take next steps. The, the CHIPS Act um, to build more of the semiconductors to the United States, that was pretty significant. Yep. Hey, Philip, thanks so much for your time today. Welcome back. Glad you had a good vacation. And uh, you're going to have to tell me by email or somewhere where and how you got sunburnt. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about all that. Hey, thanks so much, my friend. Thank you, Pat. Yep. Talk to you again soon. Philip Wegman from Real Clear Politics. Podcasts by Federated Media.